Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and today I am honored for you to be joining me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today I am joined by Amy Kenny, and we're going to be talking with her about her brand new book called My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that here in just a minute. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to let you know about a couple of things is first, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have the type of conversations that maybe it's difficult for you to find somebody to talk with, such as the church and uh, disability justice, as we're going to talk about today. We want to have those conversations because they're important and we need to engage in them. And for those of us who uh, maybe maybe are followers of Jesus, like feel a sense of responsibility to love our neighbors and to love the people around us. And that means having difficult conversations in many cases. Another thing is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100%, that we don't need to agree with someone completely to have a dialogue with them, and that we don't necessarily need to leave the conversation agreeing on everything. That is okay for us to disagree. And we truly believe that we can learn from anything and from everything because everything has something that we can learn from. Everything has something to teach us from the trivial to the serious or from uh, <laughs> to the menial things, whatever that, whatever that might be. And today we're going to be learning from Amy Kenny, and we're going to be talking about uh, disability and faith and uh, the church as well, and how all of those things intersect as well as uh, many other things as well. Now, if you've been listening for a while or you've been listening, uh, you know, maybe this is your first episode and you have an idea or something or someone that you would love us to talk with on the podcast, I would love to hear from you and just hear some of the things that maybe you're interested in learning from as well and seeing if we could potentially cover some of that stuff on the podcast. Now, the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, let me tell you a little bit about Amy, and then we will jump right into my conversation. Amy Kenny is a disabled scholar and a Shakespeare lecturer who hates Hamlet. We're going to get into that a little bit in our conversation. She serves on the Mayor's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force in her home city. She coordinates support for people experiencing homelessness in her neighborhood and is currently co-launching Jubilee Homes OC, a permanent supportive housing initiative in her local community. She is a scribe for Freedom Road Institute and believes that every human is an image bearer worthy of belonging. You can find her cruising on her scooter, Diana, Princess of the of the My Scooter, which is named after Wonder Woman. We're going to get into a lot of those different things as well. And she is the author of the book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Amy Kenny. Well, Amy, it's so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast. Thanks for having me, Caleb. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, I was, uh, I was looking on your website 
And I saw something very interesting of how you describe yourself in your bio. You say, uh, you know, you describe yourself, you say, you know, I'm a disabled scholar and a Shakespeare lecturer who hates Hamlet. Absolutely. Yeah. Who likes that guy? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I I was just curious. I would just love to hear a little bit more about that. And even uh, like, um, that's just a, and I don't mean this in a bad way, just an unusual way to introduce yourself and everything, but I love it. Yeah, it's because I have been to so many parties and social gatherings where the first thing after saying that I teach Shakespeare is that people want to talk to me about Hamlet and he is the absolute worst. He's mean to his mom. He hates women. He tells his girlfriend that women are not to be trusted and bad. And I just think those are huge red flags. Why do we like this guy? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, so what is your favorite Shakespearean, you know, work? Definitely Titus Andronicus. That's the one where at the end, Titus kills his daughter's attackers, chops them up, puts them into a pie and then feeds it to their mom. So that's definitely the vibes I'm going for in my (laughs) classes. (laughs) Oh man. What, uh, what stands out so much to you about that one in particular? Well, I always bring in cherry pie for the students when I teach that and just kind of see what happens. <laughs> but no, in, in seriousness, though, I enjoy that play because that is so much to say to one another about racism, misogyny, disability, just the lived experience of a variety of characters that allow us to talk about our own experiences with that. So while it's true that when teaching Titus, or yes, even Hamlet, that I am teaching Shakespeare, I think what I'm really teaching is compassion and inviting students into thinking about finding themselves in the other. What helps you, you know, uh, because I imagine that you probably do have to talk about Hamlet at some point in in your classes. Um, What have you learned about teaching things to where it's like, it's not your favorite story like you don't like some of the things that are apparent in the story I think the most important thing is to own it and that gives Mm. students such empowerment and ownership over their own feelings towards the texts sometimes I think we can be fooled into believing that in order to think something is interesting or worthy of our time we have to like every aspect of it and that's just not realistic or true particularly for plays that were written 400 years ago and i think this extends to what we experience in scripture as well and i think we should be honest with parts of these stories that make us uncomfortable or that are squidgy or that we can't easily kind of brush away mhm what are a story is just something that I'm, I love learning about a little bit more. And so I would, I would love to hear what are some of the things that you use to help better understand like the story, the themes, what's happening in the story, all of that. I think a lot about what isn't told. So hmm. a lot of times we get kind of an overview of a scene or we get the story from one person's perspective and who is not telling the story? What are they feeling in these moments? How does it feel when Hamlet says, frailty thy name is woman, when you are Ophelia or Gertrude in other scenes with him? You know, how does it feel when you are described using racist slurs or ableist slurs and thinking about what is kind of in between the story that is told? Mm. 
what are some of your, I know we were talking about Star Wars, uh, you know, offline a little bit. What are some of your other favorite stories that you just love uh, learning from or you love going back to over and over again? I love Wonder Woman. And while I don't generally like the DC films, I think that Wonder Woman is great because she's not motivated by revenge or by something negative that happens to her. She is motivated by justice and by love. And there's a something that I resonate with in that. And then a hard truth in that, that she still suffers a lot of and um, trauma and pain and naysayers and haters, even though she is trying to fight for, for justice and love. And I really love Rogue One. I like the idea of uh, being fully committed to hope, even when it seems, you know, inadvisable and unnecessary. And even when it's quite clear that it's not going to have the outcome that you are going to benefit from, but it's going to benefit others. There's something about that story that really resonates with me. Mm. Can you, uh, you, you talked about two different tensions that, you know, we, we can sometimes live with in both of those stories. Um, what are the things that help you manage those, both of those tensions, the, the love and justice and that, uh, and the suffering that can come with that and the, the wanting to be hopeful and facing like a dark reality too. Ice cream mainly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Jokes aside. Yes. Ice cream. That's part of myself. Oh yeah. But in addition, I think it's really being rooted in the truth of who you are and not who people tell you you are. I think that's a really core practice for me. And then the other one is that I regularly practice gratitude by naming every morning what I am grateful for today. And sometimes it is very small, like I'm grateful for these fuzzy socks. And sometimes it is large, you know, like I'm grateful for my life or people in my life or things like that. But just naming that I think helps me hold those tensions without feeling as though I have to be in one side or the other. Cause I think a lot of times that is really rooted in fear. Hmm. Uh, talk to me about, you know, you mentioned the practice of like remembering who you are and staying true to that. What does that look like for you? Yeah. I really try to name for myself who I am that is both from scripture and from people in my life that have told me, you know, traits or attributes that they notice about me that don't change or aren't about accomplishment. Because of course, you know, our accomplishments and our resumes can look fancy and shiny, but underneath that's not really who we are. And so really naming for myself that I believe that my body and my mind and myself are made in the image of the divine and that I am wholly loved and belong and cherished and more specifics to that, that are personal and unique to what people have named for me, but making sure that even if that day I don't accomplish anything or I totally mess up in trying to, I'm still, that is still true about my being. Uh, can you talk, I mean, talk to me about like the tension that I, and again, I don't know, I would imagine it would exist whatever you have. Um, society is not set up normally for people who are disabled or who have who have a disability as well. And so I imagine like for, for somebody, um, 
it's probably hard. I don't know. I would imagine that it might be harder to um, to remember <laughs> that because there's a lot of a lot of other things telling you to forget it or causing you to maybe forget it. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important for me to do it so regularly, because there are so many messages every day but in both the physical structures that exclude me and the attitudes from people as well. There are so many things that remind me that this world is not designed with me or for me. It does not anticipate for me to be included. And people are just often surprised when I'm roaming about the world. And even well-meaning comments from students I often receive you're the first disabled professor I've had, or I didn't know disabled people could teach. Cool. Thank you. (laughs) You know? Um, And that's, that's endearing and, and well-meaning, but behind that is the assumption that we don't have any gifts or anything to offer the world. So reminding myself really regularly that that is actually a lie and that I am beloved and have gifts and have purpose, I think is really important for my own not just survival, but my own thriving. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me about, and I imagine there it, it's probably a little bit trickier, or maybe just complex of like, even just wanting to help people understand like, Hey, I, I am here. I am different than your experience. While at the same time, like not feeling the pressure to be like the, like not taking on that responsibility necessarily or too much of that responsibility, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's definitely a tension and one that can feel heavy at times, if I'm honest, because some days I just want to be Amy. I don't want to be everyone's only disabled friend. And unfortunately, because we have segregation in church spaces and a lot of times in education and also in workplaces, many people do not have very much experience with the disability community. So they don't know the words to use. They don't know the ideas that are harmful and toxic and even well-intentioned ideas can be really harmful. So it can be very exhausting trying to educate people and just wanting to go about my day and just live my life, but also having to educate folks on, oh, actually, please don't just move my wheelchair from one side of the room when I'm sitting in it, you know, or please don't just pick up my cane and play with it. That's actually kind of weird, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, there is a tension there that can often be really exhausting for us. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some of the uh, the harmful ideas that can be out there. Can you talk about some of those and what those can look like? I think at the root of many of them is the notion that disabled people are not fully human. Most people wouldn't say that part out loud. They would know to keep that quiet, but that is baked in to a lot of the assumptions around how limited our lives are or the lack of the quality of life that we can expect. I'm often told from people that I won't have a good quality of life because I'm disabled, or I would rather die than be in your body. Thank you. I don't know. How do you, how do you respond to that? You know, except for to you know, turn your scooter up to the highest power and run them over. Uh, But (laughs) That idea that we shouldn't exist or our lives aren't worth living or it's only chronically ill or high risk or disabled people who are harmed by this, so no big deal, or we're not worthy of inclusion, those are really baked into every system and structure in our lives. 
Hmm. Can you talk about some, and you, you mentioned a couple, can you talk about like the subtler, subtler ways that that ends up showing up that like we, we might not even notice that we're, we're saying these things or we're living out those things. So in 1990, when the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed into law, churches fought, some churches, I should say, fought against participating in that. And so churches and Christian schools are still excluded from having to actually follow ADA. So discriminating against disabled folks in church faith and religious schools and, you know, spaces that is still legal. A lot of people aren't even aware of that. And that comes as a surprise to many people. And that type of erasure, the fact that we're not included in people's histories or education, that disability rights history isn't included when we talk about civil rights, that disability isn't included in our statistics when we talk about diversity, whether it be hiring or education numbers or whatever the case may be, disability is so often erased. And I think that erasure demonstrates that to many, we're just not even worth considering. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I did not know that either. I didn't know that piece of history. Um, is there, is there any, I mean, I know that there are, uh, are there other events like that, that just stand out in your mind that you wish people knew more about? I wish people knew more about the crypt tax, which is the extra money that disabled people pay for being disabled, just because we have additional medical appointments and access needs and, Unfortunately, many buildings and structures aren't already accessible, so then we have to make them accessible. And a lot of times that comes down to individual cost instead of the institution doing it. And then of course, mobility aids, not all disabled people use mobility aids, but those of us who do, those cost money as well. So one study estimates that that crypt tax is 10 to $30,000 for each disabled person every year here in the United States. So it's a lot of money that we oh, yeah. are paying just for because our body minds are disabled. So I wish people had just an awareness of that to even come to think about what life is like for those of us who are disabled. Mm-hmm. Who's someone uh, throughout history that is or that was disabled or is disabled that you wish more people knew about or our history uh, talked more about? Frida Kahlo, Judy mm. Human. Uh, Judy Human is a disability rights activist, and she was really crucial in the 504 sit-ins and the passing of ADA. And I think people having an awareness of her and Brad Lomax and the work that they did on the Capitol crawl and to actually get ADA passed is really important to understanding how this this fight for rights for disabled people has been going on for a lot longer than people realize. And so sometimes it can feel as though everyone is still at that 101 level of just coming to an awareness that there even are disability rights and that's a part of civil rights. So getting people to have an awareness of that fight and then of artists and folks like Frida Kahlo who are disabled and creating arts and thinking about why disability is so often erased when we talk about 
history, when we talk about art, when we talk about culture. What are other parts of this conversation that you wish that you would hear more people talking about or engaging in? I wish more people would have an awareness that disability is a culture and not a medical identity. We have our own histories and heroes and stories. We have our own languages and cultural norms. And too often people reduce disability to a medical model or a medical idea of impairment. And then that creates a hierarchy of humanity, which is gross. And it also suggests that that's all disability is. And it erases the ways that disability is actually a culture and other people get to participate in it along with us. What's some of your favorite aspects of that culture? Access intimacy is definitely one of my favorite aspects of disability culture. That's the idea from Mia Mingus that when disabled folks are together or allies who have an awareness of our access needs, when we are together, our access needs are often met without condemnation or critique. And those are met really seamlessly without having to describe why we need the thing. So an access need might be that you need an accessible bathroom or you need a sensory room or you need a ramp or a fidget spinner or low um, lights or any access needs can be all kinds of things. And to not have to explain to people, well, why do you need that? Or you didn't need that two weeks ago. Why do you need it today? And unfortunately, that's often how disabled folks are responded to when we talk about our access needs. So that idea of access intimacy, that when you say, oh, hey, I need this thing for my body mind to be able to function today or for me to be able to be included in this space. And it is met with, let's figure out how to get that for you instead of met with critique. Mm. What are some of the like aspects of the conversation that um, that you were just like, this is not this is not helpful. Like I imagine, um, you know, the explain, well, why do you need that? That would be one of those things. What would be some other things that's like, yeah, that's not helpful in this conversation? Yeah, I think why that's not helpful is because it assumes that someone else knows my body better than Mm. I do. And also in that vein is when someone else assumes that they know what remedies or curatives they should be offering me. So in the book, I have a top 10 list of the top 10 remedies people have given to me. And it's to have some levity and to kind of laugh at this absurdity that all the time when I am out in public, my body becomes a type of public property. People recommend everything to me from kale to essential oils to hitting my leg with a hammer. Somehow I'm still disabled. But the idea is that people assume that they know better because they are not disabled and I am. And that too is that hierarchy of thinking that some bodies are better than others. That's just gotta be exhausting. Truly. Truly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things which I absolutely love that you do is um, you incorporate into how Jesus interacted with disabled people as well. And th- one of the things that stood out to me is uh, you say, well, Jesus welcomed the disabled, the poor, and the outcast. Christian communities are often spaces of exclusion. And I would be curious to hear, and we've talked a little bit about how some spaces can be exclusion. Um, I would be curious to hear, is there any 
um, uniqueness to what it looks like in like what exclusion looks like in Christian communities, or does it look very, I imagine it looks similar too. Yeah. The ableism is the same, but added is this gravity of sin. And a lot of times Christian folks will use the language of sin and to excuse that ableism. What sin is preventing you from getting up and walking? I've heard dozens of times, mm-hmm. or if you just believed you would be cured. And this idea that I am not only disabled and my body works in a way that is thought of as broken or less than by the mainstream society, but also that I'm somehow not faithful and extra sinful because I'm disabled. Those ideas are not okay. They're really harmful. And they're they're just also not in line with what Jesus says when asked Mm -hmm. if this disabled person sinned or if their parents sinned, Jesus just says, nope, that that's not right. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of discipling people into ableism and then blaming that bigotry on the Bible. Talk to me about what, like if, if you were in charge for the day, um, what, what would it look like? Or how do you wish that the church would start having this conversation and then talk about like, what does the, like, what can discipling people into, um, into better disciples of Jesus look like with this as well? Well, if I was in charge for a day, I mean, ice cream all around. But... <laughs> here, here, second yes. that. But I think that it's really important to have disabled folks in leadership in churches and not just as this kind of tokenized, you get to read a Bible verse every now and again, and we tick the diversity box, but actually having disabled folks share their gifts with the community and get to lead and to respond to that prophetic witness to the body. We all have gifts and we all get to share those. And yet disabled people are so often erased or excluded that it's assumed that we can't not just even participate, but we can't lead. So that would be one huge thing that I think churches Mm -hmm. can do. Another one is that When we read scripture in community with a diverse group of folks, we hopefully have the ability to expand our idea of what church can look like and what church can be together. And a lot of times when we're reading these narratives in scripture and someone who's disabled crops up in there, it's talked about from a perspective of someone who is not disabled and has never had any actual experience with disabled folks outside of maybe an inspirational film every now and again. So really listening well to disabled friends and community members when we say, ooh, that's actually kind of harmful to just assume I need prayer just because I'm disabled, or please don't say that word or do that practice, or can we have Can we take this language out of this worship song? Or can we make sure that we're not forcing people to stand as part of the liturgy? Any of those practices really come from having disabled people in your community that you are actually listening to and letting lead the way. You know, it made me, and I I would love your thoughts on this too, specifically, like, um, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, the passage in John 9 to where it talks about the blind man as well. And, um, and until like I started going through your book, I had like, again, I just hadn't really thought, yes, that 
he is disabled. He is disabled because he can't see. Um, and I would just love your thoughts whenever it comes to, I mean, and this is so true all throughout the gospels of different instances like that. How can we like talk about that in a way that, that does help people see, Hey, this person is disabled without making it like bigger than, than what it is, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point because so often characters in scripture are disabled and we don't talk about them that way. So I talk about Jacob and Jesus and Paul all as disabled. And generally speaking, though that word is not ascribed to those characters. So it is important, I think, to name disability in its specificity to make sure that we connect that to disabled folks in our community now. I think the other thing that's really important is to make sure that when we're reading these stories or interpreting these stories, that we're really having a meeting with ourselves and asking ourselves, is this perpetuating my own ableist assumptions or why do I think that? Why do I think that this and then fill in the blank for whatever's happening in the story or is that actually happening in the story and then some some good questions around is that particular to the context of the time or is it universal for us today really those questions we should always be asking when we are engaging with scripture but for some reason when it comes to disability a lot of times we just skip right to the conclusion of making the disabled person really into an object of inspiration and that just gets a little bit old who wants to be an object yeah yeah talk a little bit more about that of um of what that can look like and how instead can we and again this is this feels like such a, a simple question but like how can we treat people as people what a concept <laughs> I know <laughs> yeah we have this idea in the disability community of inspiration porn that's from mm. Stella Young and Maisun Saeed. And it's basically the idea that disabled people are often turned into inspirational narratives only. We are consumed by non-disabled people really just to feel good about yourself that, oh, look, there's a disabled person doing something, yay. Mm. And the danger of that is it doesn't allow for us to be complex humans that contain multitudes. It doesn't allow for a range of emotions and gifts that we all have. And it doesn't allow for the diversity of the disability community itself, where 26% of the US population, 15% of the global population, we're not a monolith. We're not all the same. Mm -hmm. So really making sure that we're not reducing humans into objects should be a baseline but unfortunately, a lot of church spaces I've been in, we can't even really meet that. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you you talk about in the book, which I think would be good for us to talk about, is um you talk about language as well of like how even to engage in this conversation, and um, you know you you talk about in your book and what you choose, you know, disabled people versus people with disabilities. Um, I would be which that that's just an important thing to engage in as well. I would love to hear your thoughts on. Um, just making sure that we are we are using people-centered language and using um, the most the most honoring type of language. Yeah, I think it's really important to give disabled people the dignity of telling us how they want their body minds to be described, because there is a variety. Because as we're talking about, we aren't monolithic. So one of mm -hmm. the big tensions is to, whether or not to use people-first language, people with disabilities, or identity-first language, disabled people. I use identity first language 
because people with disabilities to me sounds as though I am separate from my disability somehow, or it almost, when people say I live with a disability, I mean, it's not my roommate, you know, it's intrinsic to my body mind. (laughs) So I use, I use identity first language, but of course, welcome other disabled folks using different ways to describe their body minds. I use it because disability isn't anything to be ashamed of. It's not something that I can or should hide about myself or about my life. And I use it partly to reclaim that disability and disabled is not a bad word. Of course, what, what are bad words are ableist slurs. So we can respect that there's a range of terms that can be used by disabled folks to describe themselves. But of course we would never want to use any ableist slurs to describe people. And added to that, I would even say, you know, it doesn't really make sense when people say you're wheelchair bound. I mean, I'm not bound to it. That's not, that's not true. And it just doesn't make sense. And wheelchairs are actually liberating. They allow me to move with more freedom and ease. Hmm. Differently abled is another one that's never made sense to me. Um, different from whom, like <laughs> who are we comparing yeah. to? So, and as a general rule, I think special needs can be really harmful as well, because it suggests that my body mind requires something extra in addition to being human. When you go somewhere, don't you want there to be a bathroom you can use? Don't you want to be able to have access to the building? Don't you want that to be an emergency plan for your evacuation in the case of fire? Those aren't special needs. Those are human, human needs. Mm. So I think those are just some broad examples of language to think about and reconsider and then avoid using. Yeah. Uh, as, as I was listening to you talk, it just made me think of, um, man, you just have incredible perspective, like just on, not, not just on, Thanks. This, <laughs> but, ju- but just in life, because literally I'm, uh, and again, part of it's because, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily my experience, but even just listening to you talk about, yep, my wheelchair is liberating, which is not a normal thing yeah. uh, that I would hear. I would, I would just love, um, I don't know. And this, this may be too difficult of a question to answer, but I would just love to hear, um, like what has helped you just gain greater, per, like gain greater perspective because, you know, mm. um, because I think we all have the temptation to, to look at our circumstances and go, life is really tough right now. Um, and I do not get that sense from you at all. Thanks. There, there are certainly tough parts to being disabled and yeah. a lot of those are ableism and a lot of those are dealing with folks and folks' assumptions and the weight of explaining every little thing. But I think something that really grounds me is that when I was young, I was taught in church that everyone was made in the image of God. And I had the audacity to believe it. And I believe I am made in the image of God. I'm not not ashamed of my disabled body because it displays the crucified Christ. And I don't have any time for the ableism to seep in because I am too busy riding around on my scooter and just, you know, whooshing away. Yeah. Wheelchairs are liberating. It is such freedom that allows me, my, my wheelchair allows me such freedom. She is named Diana 
off to Wonder Woman and has a little Wonder Woman W bedazzled on the front. And I can go much faster and for much longer and much more reliably with Diana than I can by myself. And what a beautiful picture of interdependency and how we're all interdependent. Even folks who don't think that they are disabled and who aren't yet disabled, you, you're not independent. You're not self-reliant. We're all yeah. interdependent. So I think that just really holding on to that truth reminds me that I don't have anything to be ashamed of because my body mind is disabled. Uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you about what you talk about in the book is you talk about, we have a tendency whenever it comes to healing is we tend just to think in terms of physical healing, uh, for that. And I, which, which is not the case. There's many types of healing. And I would love, um, just to hear your thoughts on what do we miss out by limiting our definition of healing to physical? I think we miss out on being faithful to, the work of the beloved community, we are invited to bear one another's burdens, to be one body together, and to be interdependent in one another. Our flourishing is tied up in each other's. It's not about one person escaping into some transcendent realm where they get to thrive. It's about all of us collectively getting to flourish. And when we have an idea of healing, which I call curing in the book, that's limited to physical and rapid fixes, quick fixes, we're really just looking for a magician and we're not looking for a way of life that invites us into the slow, messy, complicated work of healing that often takes a community to really make happen. It's no wonder that we reduce it to the physical because that's a quick snap like Thanos. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> really, if you have been in community with folks who are undergoing a healing process with therapy or with um, you know just various modes, it takes time and it's a process and we're not in a Marvel movie. Yeah. Mm. As you were talking, it even made me think of um, just the role that, I've been thinking a lot about like individualism and how that plays throughout history as well too. And how much, um, even, even this conversation around uh, healing that we're talking about plays into individualism because essentially it is, you know, um, I want healed so that I could do the best, you know, that I can, yeah, yeah. Yada, yada, all of that stuff. I would uh, just love to hear some of your thoughts on um, how individualism plays into this, into this conversation as well. Yeah, it plays into it in a lot of ways because individualism is connected to this medical model of disability that says that what is at odds is my body mind and not the society itself, which is this social model of disability. That if we built spaces and attitudes in a way that accommodated for everyone's access needs, then people would not be as disabled that the society itself can help heal some of the ostracizing and eradication of dis disabled folks. So the kind of classic example of that is that it's not difficult to navigate the world using a wheelchair if there were ramps everywhere. It's because we've put mm -hmm. stairs that makes it difficult. So that's a, an example of the social model where 
it's actually society that is disabling, not a body mind. And if we changed society, that would allow for the thriving of someone who was using a wheelchair. Now, the social model has its limits because it doesn't really account for chronic pain, which I also have. It doesn't account for other elements, but it's just a helpful framework, I think, especially for folks who are new to the disability conversation, just to even reframe like how we as a society and as a church can facilitate the healing of our disabled neighbors is to make sure that the spaces that we're in aren't disabling folks. Yeah. Uh, I would love to hear, um, what have you learned about Jesus and about God and through your faith uh, as it pertains to uh, your disability? Yeah, I have learned a lot about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. How much time do you have? Yeah. I have learned a lot about Jesus because that idea of, I have often heard from folks Jesus didn't die for you to be in a wheelchair. I don't really know what that means or what, where that's coming no. from. Ouch. But that couldn't be further from the truth, I think. I think of Jesus as disabled. When we see Jesus resurrected, he's telling Thomas, put your hand in my side. Look at my scars. From what we know of crucifixion, I don't think these are just little scratches. I think these are disabling wounds. And those disabling wounds are part of our redemption somehow. And I think we erase disability when we talk about Jesus because it makes a lot of people uncomfortable and because people don't really know what that means or how to deal with it. And they think that they've been promised some sort of Baywatch body that um, is going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that's all prosperity gospel. But the gospel that we have and the Jesus that I know is disabled and beautifully, redemptively so. So I think knowing that it has given me a type of disability pride that I'm not ashamed of my disabled body mind, but also that there is something so powerful to me about the idea that Jesus can defeat the dominions of darkness and death itself, and yet chooses to come back as a disabled person. I don't think that's a whoopsie or an accident. And I think that I would love for folks to meditate on that a little longer and to think about what that might mean about our disabled neighbors. How do you wish Jesus was talked about more? I wish people use the word disables because, because a lot of people are hesitant to use that word with Jesus. It would also invite us to think about how perfection or this idea of non-disability or this idea of physical, you know, thriving or vitality isn't something that Jesus seems to be that interested in, in that resurrection narrative. And I think that complicates a lot of our theology and a lot of our ideas of what it is we are supposed to be faithful to. Uh, I know that there's, there's a lot of other things that we could cover in the book, but is there anything just top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about? I 
think I would encourage folks to not, I can, I just sort of sense anytime I talk about Jesus as disabled, people feel uncomfortable and it's new and it's stretching. And so I would just encourage folks to keep listening, keep learning, keep thinking about disability. And even when it makes us uncomfortable or it makes us uncertain, don't look away or don't shy away to really just think about what might that mean that Jesus is disabled and how can that help me understand disability more? And I will say that disability is the only marginalized community you can join at any time because by either age or accident, many people will be disabled one day. So of course we should care about disabled neighbors because we should love our neighbors. And we should also care about it because many of you will join us at some point. And wouldn't it be great if you could learn from our wisdom now instead of waiting until you join us Mm. to do that? You have this quote in the book that I would love to read and then uh, get get your take on. Uh, You say, even writing this book, I fear my disability will be misunderstood. And then you go on and you say, the truth is that being disabled is hard. It's beautiful, heartbreaking, illuminating, full of loss and full of life. I am grateful I am disabled and yet I wouldn't wish it on anyone. End of podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do say that. I am trying to capture some of that tension that we've talked about and that idea that I think it's dangerous to say that everything is positive about being disabled because that's just not true. There's so much ableism and exhaustion of dealing with that ableism. And there are things that my body cannot do and that can be frustrating at times. So I don't think it's healthy or helpful to pretend that it's all happy clappy and everything is sunflowers. But equally, it is not a tragedy or a sad, bad, mad kind of idea that a lot of people have of disability. I am not everyone's supervillain looking at you, Darth Vader. And that's usually the portrayals of disabled characters that we get. And most days being disabled is not the worst part of my day. A lot of days people's ableism is. So I say the complexity of that to really invite people into rethinking the reality of my life without trying to pretend that it's something that it's not. Uh, another thing, just as we're ending that, I would love to ask, because I know that, especially with doing uh, the book right now, I'm sure there's a tendency to a lot of your conversations are focused around what we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes. And I would love to hear from you. What are some of the things that you are learning right now uh, outside of what we've been talking about that you wish that you could talk more about, share more about, or continue to learn more about? Wow. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I have just been this week virtually at a disability theology conference and it has been wonderful and illuminating and joyous. And so I'm still thinking on a lot of those ideas and thinking about this idea of what can disability make possible, I think is a question that I'm still chewing on and thinking about. And even the phrasing of that, that one of the conference members asked, I really enjoy because it it's invitational and it, it gives us yeah. possibilities. 
but outside of uh, disability that yes, I am talking a lot about and, and has been a large chunk of my time lately, especially I am thinking a lot about why are the Marvel movies so bad and how can they be better? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, I just said that to, to <laughs> joke you. I know, I know. Uh, I am thinking about how I want a Princess Leia prequel. And mm. yes, spoilers everyone yes she's in the obi-wan but i want one that's just really dedicated to her and i would like to see what she's up to not when she's 10 but even a few years down the line so Mm. that's something that i i'm thinking a lot about today at least (laughs) oh no that's great. Well, Amy, I know that people are going to, you know, want to get your book. My body is not a prayer request and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things. You can go to my website, amy-kenny.com or I am introvertedly on Instagram at Dr. Amy Kenny, and you can find places on my website to purchase the book and just get to know me more. Awesome. Well, Amy, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Well, thanks for having me. There were so many things that got me thinking during this conversation. And part of that is just because this isn't uh, part it's not necessarily part of my everyday life and so Amy is t- Amy is talking about things and giving perspective that is not my norm which isn't why it's important to have conversations like these because our perspective isn't necessarily the norm and our perspective other people don't necessarily share our perspective and we can learn a lot from other people from what she was talking about and several of the examples that she gave in uh and how disability is shown in in media and the um, sometimes the poor examples that have been shown as well. And so being more observant to that and it it almost it gave me a new lens to start seeing things through or start thinking things through that is not normal to me and that's okay. Uh, a couple other things that really stood out to me is uh, is Jesus is disabled as well, and that he that one he identifies as that that he was uh, disabled that he was not as abled, uh, particularly like you think of uh, of the the cross and the beating and, and his body and how it was um, literally brut- brutalized through there and just this idea and you know it plays out for people who are in the disability or who have who have a disability as well but that jesus jesus sought out the people who did not have a place that jesus made a place he made room for people who did not have a place he made room for people to where there was no room and and just thinking about that and thinking about what the what the church is meant to be and 
thinking that it is meant to be for the people who aren't welcome. It's meant to be for the people who maybe don't feel like they belong or don't feel like there is any room for them. How can we go about creating space for them and creating spaces we talked about in the and as Amy and I were talking about, creating spaces that show them that we want you here and that we value you and that you are part of this member of the community. Uh, a couple other things is just the idea of um, of how we can have this idea of what life is supposed to look like. And whenever we don't see somebody meeting that idea or maybe they're unable to do that, how that can lead to us pitying them and that one that isn't helpful. And true, that's a very... That's a very small view of life to think that life can only be beautiful in one way. And just as, and just as she was talking about, and she talks about in the book is that that doesn't mean that life isn't hard for, for anyone who's going through it, for people with a disability or through um, anyone who's going through any type of, um, of hardship just in life as well, that just because they have a disability or just because life is different that doesn't mean that it has to be bad and learning to hold both those things you know i i uh love how she uh talks about it in the book and i, and I just want to read um it here is you know talking about even writing this book i fear my disability will be misunderstood the truth is is that being disabled is hard beautiful heartbreaking illuminating full of loss and full of life i am grateful i am disabled and yet i wouldn't wish it on anybody and just being able to hold both of those things that seem very contradictory at the same time and and just finding the the beauty in it finding the meaning in it finding the the finding life in it so those are a couple of things that I'm thinking about that's got me thinking about this conversation. I would love to hear from you and maybe some of the things that are standing out to you from this conversation or anyone that you would love us to talk with on the podcast or subjects that you would love us to continue to talk about or learn from on the podcast as well. The best way to do that is learners quarter podcast at gmail.com. Please leave a rating and write a review on whatever podcast app player you use. And you know, if there's something that really resonated for you, I would post about it on you know facebook twitter you know instagram whatever that is and just share the episode with people we want to have more conversations like the ones that we're having today and on this podcast because we need to have more conversations like this and whether that's happening on the learner's corner or happening in your life i just want it to happen more so that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thank you to Amy for being on the podcast as well. Thanks to you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.